You're about to listen to episode five of part one of the podcast series, The Alpha Human. It's all about the ancient Athenian philosopher Socrates. So if you haven't listened to the first four and you want to catch up, be my guest. If you want to dive in, I welcome you and join me as we enter the fray. Socrates has arrived. What great news. We can finally get to talk about the subject of our podcast series. Phew. Okay, so let's dig into what we know about this bouncing baby alpha. Socrates was born to the Athenian citizen Sophroniscus and his wife, Phaeronite, in the month of May in the year 470 BC. He lived right outside the city walls of Athens. Okay, that's about it. Thanks for listening to this episode. Wait, wait. What's that? Yeah, that's that's all we know about the childhood of Socrates. You've probably guessed what I'm about to say next, that if Socrates had bothered to write anything down, then we would have a great deal more information to work with. True. But that's not the whole story. A big reason for the utter lack of info on the childhood of Socrates is that in ancient Athens, kids didn't count. Literally. The city-state did not recognize children as anything other than a part of a citizen's household, like a chair or some buckets of tallow. First time a person becomes a member of Athenian society is on or around their 18th birthday. That is when the father will officially enroll his son onto the rolls of their deme, one of those ten quasi-political geographic slices of the pie that comprised the citizens of Athens. Sophroniscus did that for Socrates, and that is why we know roughly when he was born. Besides that, we have Bupkis, by way of actual facts about the upbringing of the most important human to have ever lived, self-aware category. As we covered in the previous episode, the title of the most important human has to be the first one, but I decided to create a couple of classes to help separate. We have the alpha human and then the alpha human self-aware. So though we don't have much, we can make some pretty good deductions on what life was like for toddler Socrates. The first thing that we can determine occurs the moment the little bugger was born. He won the gender lottery and was born a male. We've already covered in a previous episode the trials and travails of the wives and daughters of Athenian citizens, living hidden lives in the cold homes of their fathers and husbands. Selfishly, if Socrates had been born a girl, then we would have lost out on one of the few original human beings we've ever had. But for Socrates, it was much more pragmatic than that. His gender could very well be a matter of life and death. Socrates was born just ten years after the city of Athens was torched by the Persians. It had been mostly rebuilt over the decade, but assuredly there would still be work being done to return the city to its former glory. This was made much more challenging by the fact that Athens was now the center of the ancient world. Everyone wanted to be part of what was going on in the Attic. That's what the area around Athens was called, the Attic. Kind of a cool name, like a neighborhood in a big city. Hey man, come hang out with us. We're headed to the attic. See who's hanging. Anyway, there wasn't enough room for everyone in the attic. More importantly, there wasn't enough food for everybody. And this was not a new threat to the Athenians. They had faced down death by starvation for their entire existence. And now, even though they were more prosperous than ever, Athens was only one of two bad harvests away from a famine. 
Luckily for them, there had been some foresight by their forefathers, the past leaders of Athens, as the city-state had a plan for dealing with overpopulation. First, they had the benefit of overall short lifespans. Most of Athens lived into their mid-40s, not much of a need for social security in Athens. The second part of their plan was to politely ask a group of citizens to leave the city. They would be provided with all the necessary provisions and plans to start their own city-state. Somewhere else. If no one was willing to pick up and move, the citizens of Athens would ask them again, just maybe not as politely. But they really had to ask more than once. Athenians loved to set up new colonies. They had perfected it to the point that they had their own start-your-own-city-state kit, with all the necessaries for planting your own flag in Italy or Africa, Asia. Take your pick. Just don't be here by the time the harvest comes in, and don't let that goat gate hit your ass on the way out. Colonization helped tremendously with population control, but it still wasn't enough. That leaves the last piece of the population control puzzle. The one that deals with the rights of the father, what the Romans would call the paterfamilias. In Greece, like Rome, the male head of the household reigned supreme. They held the very power of life and death over their entire family. No laws were in place that held a father guilty of murder of his wife or children. A dad could strangle or starve, the two most common ways, any member of his family he wished, for no reason whatsoever. And when it came to population control, the rule of the family, or the father, was applied by the custom that each child born was delivered into the father's care for the first five days of its life. After the five days is up, or before, the father decides either to keep the child or, well, I'll let an actual Athenian father fill you in on the details. This quote is from a letter that an Athenian husband sent to his wife. He is on a way on some business and is inquiring about her well-being. Uh, this quote comes from Zimmern's book. The letter reads, quote, I beg and beseech you to take care of the little child, and as soon as we receive wages, I will send them to you. When, and good luck to you, you bear offspring, if it is male, keep it. If it is female, expose it. The unwanted female babies of the Athenians were left to die placed in pots, exposed to the elements. They came to be known as pot babies. So by being born male, Socrates avoided the fate of being placed into a pot to die. Add one more to the wind column for old Socrates. We can only assume that Socrates was raised in a similar manner to all Athenian children. His family was firmly blue-collar, with the professions of stonecutter for the husband and midwife for the wife. The children stayed at home unless they were attending school, which consisted of grammar, reading, writing, and arithmetic, music, and gymnastics or physical education. There's no indication that Socrates was any sort of prodigy, though considering the out-of-sight, out-of-mind nature of child-rearing in Athens, he could have been amazeballs intellectually, and no one would have paid any notice. In any event, at the age of six or so, another important thing happened in ancient Athens. The wealthy statesman Pericles was elected to chief magistrate. This was around 464 BC. This would have little immediate effect on Socrates. He would just keep going to school and grow up a normal child of Athens. The same cannot be said about Athens herself. Our beauty is going to get a makeover. Pericles is going to usher in an era of something almost unheard of in, well, I was going to say the ancient world, but I could easily say any world, including our modern one. Pericles and his cadre of fellow humanists, the playwrights Aeschylus and Sophocles, the historian Thucydides, and most prominently the sophist Protagoras, are going to place mankind at the apex of the natural world, supplanting the gods of Olympus seemingly overnight and making man 
the center of the universe. Now, for clarification, a sophist is basically a professional teacher. And in ancient Athens, they were much more than that, but for a lot less of the people. The education and skills taught by the sophists were valid tools that we still use today. Rhetoric, public speaking, persuasion, legal training. They were popular and wealthy due to their working almost exclusively with the wealthy. This was because only the wealthy were able to pay the exorbitant fees. To make matters worse, or better, Socrates despised sophists, so he might have a different opinion than most. The tricks of the trade were very effective. Remember, this is the very basic society, not only in material wealth, but in depth of culture. For instance, the average Athenian didn't use or understand sarcasm. Using words ironically was considered trickery or outright lying. Something like this will get Socrates the philosopher in some hot water later in his life. But concerning sophists, I like to think of the skills taught by them as sort of a technology. And if you don't understand the concept of persuasive rhetoric, then when someone is using it on you, you're going to be in for some trouble. You could be talked right out of your money. You could be convinced that someone who is innocent is guilty, or vice versa. The sophists were a wealthy and influential part of Athens, and no one was more influential than Protagoras. He will eventually square off against Socrates as they try to out-argue each other for supremacy of thought. But as our young Socrates is still in elementary school, Protagoras is working on other things, like pushing forth his ideas of a man-made world, free of outside magical influencers. Protagoras is famous for his saying, quote, man is the measure of all things. He continues, as for the gods, I have no idea if they exist or not, or what they are like in form. Unquote. Pericles and Protagoras were tight. They and the other humanists and the ruling group agreed in the ascendancy of the human being to the top of the food chain. Gods? Who needs gods? A lot of Athenians didn't think they did after defeating the Persians. No one could recall any god or goddess intervening. And they meant this literally, this being a culture raised on the Homeric tales of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Nothing. I mean, the complete no-show of Olympus in the battles with the Persians was taken personally by the Athenians. As Zimmer notes, quote, The Greeks did not beat the Persians by a fluke or a miracle. Thucydides and the men of the 5th century are emphatic on that point. It was not a fluke as it happened many times over, both by land and by sea, in Greece, in Asia, and in Sicily. It was not a miracle, because the gods had drawn a by and were taking no part. It was the death blow to the gods' influence. It was men and not gods who had won Marathon and Salamis, and it was men, not gods, who had made and sustained the Empire of Athens. Unquote. The ever-practical Greeks had taken the measure of their gods and found them lacking. So they got rid of them, or at least attempted to. Staying true to its democratic principles, there was a strong contingent of more conservative Athenians that had a genuine distaste for Pericles and his merry band of atheists. But the heady confidence that the majority of Athens must have been feeling was all that mattered for the time being. They had bet all they had on themselves and came up with a jackpot. Can you blame them? Now, while I sit here and marvel over what the Athenians achieved, I want to remember that in some ways, the high-minded citizens of the Golden City on the Hill were probably insufferable bores. In fact, much of the Greek population that didn't call Athens home probably found them royal pains in the ass. For example, check out Athenian citizen and historian Thucydides' Declaration of Athenian Supremacy. Quote, We are leaders of civilization, the pioneers of the human race. 
our society and intercourse is the highest blessing man can confer. To be in the circle of our influence is not dependent, but a privilege. Not all the wealth of the East can repay the riches we bestow. So we can work on cheerfully, using the means and the money that flow into us, confident that, try as they will, we will not be creditors. For through effort and suffering and on many a stricken field we have found out the secret to human power, which is the secret of happiness. Many have guessed it under many names, but we alone have learnt to know it and to make it at home in our city, and the name we know it by is freedom, for it has taught us to serve is to be free. Unquote. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. I particularly like the reference in the middle of the quote concerning being a creditor. It's another indication of how much all of this was driven from that long slog out of the financial crisis Athens emerged from not too long ago. And how about that last line? For it has taught us to serve is to be free. To serve? That doesn't sound like free market economics there. The entropic nature of concepts through time is fascinating. We mentioned sarcasm and irony earlier, and we're going to be covering those in depth in part two of this series. But in this case, take the concept of freedom. To the ancient Athenian, freedom meant service. To the modern American, freedom means pretty much the opposite, something akin to whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. You know, freedom. With Pericles in charge of Athens, it strived more than any other national body to achieve beauty and happiness in all things. They did this in all the various forms we've listed before in this series, art, architecture, mathematics, philosophy, because it was all in service of Athens, their beloved beauty. But there was definitely an undercurrent of conservative anger due to the abandonment of the gods. When things were going well, these feelings were held in check. Once things began to head south, their voices would become louder, decrying the impiety and forswearing doom. It seems as if the old battle between progressives and conservatives had been rekindled, though at this point it was merely smoldering. But it won't take much to stoke the flames. Now this matters to young Socrates for a couple reasons. The first is that the changes brought forth by Pericles and his merry pranksters made it even easier for our alpha human to pursue a career of walking the streets asking strangers questions. The second reason is that there now is a legitimate political progressive movement, albeit a bit extreme for its time, but Pericles is definitely large and in charge at the moment. With two solid political factions to play off, there is plenty of opportunity for Socrates to exploit both sides for his philosophy. As with all politics, there will be a steady stream of fallacies and one-upmanship for him to skewer. It is a very Socrates trait not to fit into their traditional roles. In the Athens of his youth, Socrates was surrounded by the intoxicating call of man being the measure of all things, that anything was possible for man. All the while living in a culture rooted in the ultra-conservative world of starvation and pot babies. Socrates would find his way right between the two of them in the space created by the fracture. He had a keen eye for this type of opportunity as it was honed using his fabled argumentative style of conversation. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. At this point, Socrates is just a boy. But he is a boy, gifted with privilege of birth and circumstance to be smack dab in the center of the beginning of it all. Now, for as much as I clutch my pearls at Thucydides' brash tone, can you argue with the accuracy of his statement? The pioneers of the human race. <laughs> That's great. Pericles is in charge and will be for over 20 years. He will usher in some more reforms aimed at trade and public works like the Parthenon. He is extremely popular and most of Athens will adopt his man is the measure of all things approach. Until they don't, and he isn't. 
But as Socrates grows into a young man and nears the age of 18, he truly is living in the best of times for the city-state of Athens. He has experienced nothing but unprecedented growth and prosperity. In times like this, Athens was easy to fall in love with. And fall in love, young Socrates did. On or around his 18th birthday, Socrates, accompanied by his father, made his way to the Athens Agora and entered his name officially into the roles of Athenian citizenship. It would be the only home he would ever know. He would leave the city only two times in his entire 70 years of life. Both of the times it would be for military reasons. For Socrates, Athens was a great place to call home. We start to pick up more and more information on Socrates after he becomes officially a citizen of Athens. We know he was trained to be a stonecutter like his father, but he may even have been a sculptor of sorts. There is a story that one of his sculptures decorated the outside of the Parthenon, though that just is a rumor. I couldn't find much more information on it. We also know that he did his compulsory military service, typically two years that were spent training the Athenian citizen on how to stomp on some Persians. But Socrates happened to be serving during a time of prolonged peace and spent most of his duty at home working on public works like stone hauling. When his service was complete, he went back home. Nothing special to report. There was one possible teenage Socrates sighting. There is a platonic dialogue entitled Paramenides, in which a 19-year-old Socrates is to have made his way to a large athletic contest to meet the renowned natural philosopher Zeno of Elia. This Zeno guy is one of the pre-Socratics I mentioned in a previous episode. He is famous for his paradoxes. His most famous one is the tortoise and the Achilles foot race, in which swift-footed Achilles can never quite catch the tortoise. There's not a ton of personal details in this account other than the young Socrates already displaying his famous questioning technique to the wizened philosopher. This makes sense because Socrates, while not well known at this point, was probably unforgettable to the people he encountered. The sheer amount of references to him by other people in their writings attest to the cultural saturation that Socrates achieved. There are a couple key attributes that contributed to this feeling amongst the people Socrates encountered. This is above and beyond his relentless questioning. No, I'm talking about two more things that make Socrates stand out. First, he was always happy. Not in a goofy, court jester way, more in a contented way. Happy with where he was, who he was, and how he lived. No one ever heard him raise his voice. If he showed any displeasure whatsoever, he would actually lower his voice, but even that was rare. It is important to note that the man didn't walk around with a big old grin on his mug. He actually tried his best to maintain an expressionless face belying no emotion as it helped him focus. In time, his expressionless visage would be copied by the Stoics and co-opted by the Romans. The Roman intellectual Cicero was a huge admirer of Socrates. His writings are filled with references to our alpha human. On the subject of Socrates' choice of facial expression, he said, quote, always keep the same expression, like Socrates, unquote. Now, there may have been another reason for Socrates to adopt such a consistent expression. He was funny-looking. Most would call him ugly. Athens was a celebrity culture. They loved the beauty of the human physical form, and for good reason. The Athenians were in incredibly great shape, as could be expected considering the cultural adherence to a parsimonious lifestyle. No room for the obese in Athens. The naked physical form was admired and celebrated. Being ripped mattered. Having good looks mattered. Socrates was neither good-looking nor ripped. He, ever the outlier, was something that most of Athens was not so maybe Socrates used his unorthodox looks to his advantage. 
they certainly drew the attention of his contemporaries. There are pretty good sculptures online for you to get a look at our main man. You can see that he's not elephant man grotesque by any means. He looks like a guy from Banger, Maine. I think of him as a mashup of three people. The actor Wilfred Brimley from the Quaker Oats and the Diabetes commercials, Samuel L. Jackson, the actor, and the baseball player Babe Ruth. Some mix of these three make up the historical Socrates, at least for me. He had a wide, flat nose that outturned his nostrils that drove the Athenians crazy. They were more drawn to the thin, aquiline schnoz of, say, Pericles. Socrates also appeared to display proptosis, commonly known as bulging eyes. He would remark that his eyes were inherently more beautiful, if one were to judge beauty correctly by an object's adherence to function, than standard eyes, as those only saw straight ahead, while his own protruding pupils could see both forward and to the sides as well. But it was his mouth that drew the most scrutiny from his fellow Athenians. Socrates had enormously full, fat lips. And since Socrates was quite often using his mouth to engage his fellow citizens, many found it more than they could bear. Check out this exchange between Socrates and a guy named Critobulus. Critobulus starts, quote, As for your mouth, I surrender. In fact, if that has been created in order to bite, you could bite off much more than I can. And don't you think that because of your thick lips, your kiss is also more tender? Socrates replies, quote, According to what you say, it seems that I have a mouth more ugly than even those of the asses. But wouldn't you say that this is proof that I am more beautiful than that goddesses that give birth to the silens who resemble me more than you? Unquote. Now this is the interesting part. In Socrates' reply, he mentions an entity, a silence, that he resembles. This is important because it shines some light on the division in Athens between the progressive Pericles supporter and the more conservative supporter of the old ways and the old gods. If you happen to consider yourself an enlightened member of Athenian society, you certainly pay no heed to superstitious belief and consider Socrates a weird, ugly-looking man. On the other hand, if you still adhere to the ancient traditions of your people and consider the gods deserving of respect, then Socrates looks like a silence, a race of half-man, half-animal beings. In fact, he looked like a satyr, and more specifically, he looked like the most famous satyr of them all, the god Dionysus, a very popular god with the rank-and-file citizens of Athens. The subjects that Dionysus covered were near and dear to all the hearts, wine, fertility, and death. That about sums it up for most of us. Socrates walked the streets of Athens pretty much every day of his life, a life that lasted for over 70 years. The fact that he looked like one of the most popular gods of Athens, one of the most popular gods for the women of Athens, mattered. If the common man and woman of Athens found Socrates average or even repulsive, then he would have had a hard time doing the whole Socrates thing. Instead, his odd looks and consistent, expressionless face made him popular amongst the common Athenians. He was a weirdo, but he was their weirdo. I mean, just look at him. He became sort of a mascot, maybe more of an ambassador that was most of the time revered and even in the worst of times tolerated by the everyday Athenian. This was a real power for Socrates and probably saved his life on more than one occasion. It was also certain to piss off the powers that be. Through his lifetime, Socrates would be ruled over by a wide variety of groups. He did his best to be a fly in the ointments of all of them, and he was still allowed to roam the streets of Athens, dirty but stoic, sticking his nose in everyone's business. 
but damn it if his freaky eyes, giant nose, and sausage lips didn't endure him to those rabble. And lucky for us it did. Now we have our beast to our beauty, together at last. When Socrates returned home after compulsory military service at the age of 20, he began in earnest to learn his father's trade as a stonecutter. And that is all we know about the next 17 years or so of Socrates' life. It appears on paper he did nothing but be a stonecutter for almost 20 years, and that may be true. If so, we certainly was consistently Socrates at this point. I'm certain he walked the streets of Athens every day. I also believe that he never stopped inquiring, never stopped asking questions. Now, we don't know much about this time, but what we do know is all from these later writings that reference his unique quality of personality, regardless of the situation. But there is nothing directly from this period in his life to draw from historically. Publicly, he shows up again, and in a big way, as he volunteers to fight as a foot soldier, a hoplite in Athens' army, at the ripe old age of 37. That first 10 years from 20 to 30, that 10-year span was actually you know, the fact that he spent them at home was pretty common for Athenian men. If there was no need for them in the military, they would return home and live with their parents until or around the age of 30. Then the man would marry and make a home for his own family. In fact, most men were prohibited from courting or even contacting women until they were 30. At that point, most of the women were actually girls as their age was closer to 15 at the time of marriage. There weren't a ton of Cupid's arrows flying in Athens. This is also something to take into account when you talk about the sexuality of Athens. Historically, Athens has been portrayed as boy-loving in the older text and pedophilia in the more recent books. I am in no by means making excuses for behavior, but I would like to point out that knowing that most Athenian men only see men and boys, only hang out with men and boys, and have to go through puberty with only men and boys, that can have an effect on what is considered moral and what is not. We are talking about Socrates, and there's a famous story that does a great job of addressing this situation, both as an example of how they saw the practice of sleeping with boys as acceptable and how Socrates dealt with it. But in order to tell the story, we have to get to the time when Socrates became a war hero. Now, sometimes when I'm working on this podcast, I get reminded of Forrest Gump. There's a certain corollary to the expressionless look and stupid is, stupid does mantra that fits Socrates. He, meaning Socrates, was also part of or connected with so many big events that there is similarity there too. In any event, when Socrates was 37, this would be around 434 BC, he heard the call of his beloved city-state and joined the army. Because he was just a regular guy, he was made an infantry soldier, a hoplite, with his solid leather armor, long spear, short sword, and big shield. It was not that common for a man his age to be a foot soldier, but Socrates was a good one. He was what all commanders want, a content, competent soldier. This competency was all the more surprising, not only considering his age, but also he never wore shoes. He campaigned for a total of almost three years through winter snows and spring storms, no shoes. Just two pieces of cloth held together by two pins. He never bitched and he never complained. He just fought like the devil. There were reports of him fighting like a demon, No expression on his face, just slaying because if one was going to have to slay, one should slay to the best of one's abilities at all times. His ability to fight like a crazy man, all the while never showing any emotion, was so off-putting that people started avoiding him on the field of battle. Barefoot and blank-faced, Socrates was beginning to become a legend. Socrates was not your average foot soldier. He was a bit older than most of the front lines. The younger soldiers were awed by the spirit, vigor, endurance, 
of the older man. They began to follow him around and join in some of the arguments. To many young men facing the horrors of war for the first time, a presence like Socrates must have been very comforting. One of the young acolytes was named Alcibiades. He is considered the leader of this younger generation of Athenians. He served with Socrates in battle. They were typically fighting in close proximity, sometimes side by side. At this point in their lives, Alcibiades, maybe 18 years old, while Socrates is about 38, the younger of the two was by far the more well-known. Alcibiades came from an ancient Athenian family, was very wealthy, competed at a high level at everything he participated in, often winning, and above all, he was strikingly good-looking. Alcibiades was all these things and more. Historically speaking, I can honestly think of no other corollary for him. His abilities smack of Julius Caesar, but his eventual betrayal has a flavor all its own. The best way to encompass how the city of Athens felt about the brash young leader of the pack was love. Now we have a bit of a love triangle happening here. As before, we have our beauty in the city of Athens. We have our beast in the form of Socrates, and now we introduce our Gaston in the form of Alcibiades. Now, there is no doubt that we owe Alcibiades a great debt for all the information we can glean about Socrates from his entanglements with him. Once they meet, they stay connected. From now until both of their deaths, the average Athenian will associate the bad boy Alcibiades with his mentor Socrates. It is from Alcibiades that we know that Socrates fought barefoot, even in winter, that he never wore anything but the thinnest of rags, that he never bitched or complained or raised his voice. Thanks to his infatuation with the older man, we know that during the long age of siege warfare, Socrates would stand in one spot for over 24 hours without moving, lost in thought. Alcibiades is the one who describes Socrates' unique battle demeanor. This is from Plato's Symposium. Quote, And in combat, if you want to hear about it, no other human being saved me but he. For he was not willing to leave me wounded, but saved both myself and my weapons. And even then, Socrates asked the generals to offer me the prize of excellence. And in this too, you will not blame me and say that I lie. But as a matter of fact, when the generals looked at my rank and wanted to offer me the prize of excellence, you, Socrates, proved more eager than the generals that I take it rather than yourself. What Alcibiades is describing here is the time that Socrates saved his life and then didn't bat an eyelash when the glory went to the younger, more popular man. In time, Alcibiades would make Socrates a war hero and famous all over Greece. His tales of the older man's quirky nature and amazing endurance and courage, combined with his Dionistic appearance, would make Socrates a folk hero in his own time, a sort of Johnny philosophy seed. It appeared that Alcibiades loved Socrates, and a person as complicated as Alcibiades was, it's hard to pin down what made that happen. Alcibiades was a ward of Pericles, Maybe he had daddy issues because there wasn't one around. Maybe he saw value in latching on to the weird ugly dude to add some credibility to his celebrity profile. Or maybe it was genuine. It certainly lasted both of their lives. And that brings us to the sex. Or really, the lack of it. Now, Alcibiades is about to tell you a story about a night he spent with Socrates while posted in Potidaea in the winter. It tells of a practice whereas an older, wizened man trades worldliness with the boy for sex. It is told from the perspective of the boy and admits full awareness to the specifics of the proposition. It also brings to light that, once again, the odd nature of Socrates. For he says no, but not for the reason you would suspect. Alcibiades says, quote, Believing that he was seriously smitten with my bloom, I thought it a windfall, 
a wonderful piece of luck, since by allowing him my favors, I would be able to learn from him all he knew. And so, wishing to hear no more from him in words, I got up and threw my cloak about his body. Then I slipped under his threadbare cloak, it was winter and cold, and put my arms around him. There I lay the entire night, holding this superhuman genius tightly, but despite all my efforts, he showed himself completely above my solicitations. I felt to him to be disdainful and superior, and almost contemptuous of my beauty, though he was perfectly polite, and his virtue was kind of courteous but proud rejection of my body thus laid before him. Nothing happened, and I eventually fell asleep. When I awoke, let all the gods and goddesses be my witness, I was still as unviolated as if I had slept with my father or older brother. Unquote. Now Socrates replies, quote, If you say you see something in me is true, and there really is some power which you could make you a better man, you must be seeing something inconceivably beautiful in me, enormously superior to your good looks. If that is what you see and you want to exchange beauty for beauty, you mean to take a huge advantage of me. You are trying to get true beauty in exchange for seeming beauty. Gold for brass. Unquote. From my investigations, what I can discern about Socrates and sexuality is that first and foremost, he liked sex. He was married and had three sons. One of them was still a baby when he was executed, so he was still rocking and rolling to the very end. But he did really like to talk about naked boys. I mean, many references can be found on how Socrates would talk to and about the young male form and hang around dressing rooms. But there's little mention of the act of having sex. Passion? Urgency? Sure. But it seems like that much like marching barefoot over ice or standing still and thinking for 24 hours straight, Socrates could ignore certain physical aspects of his nature. Socrates wasn't big on the sex for sex thing. He liked pleasure like anyone else, but defined pleasure differently. Paul Johnson, in his biography of Socrates, believes that the man reserved sexual intercourse for women. He thinks that Socrates finds, quote, pederastic lovemaking of any physical kind bad for both man and boy. He, meaning Socrates, finds it, quote, devouring. And then Johnson quotes from Xenophon's Symposium, Socrates stating, quote, the man reserves the pleasure for himself, the most shameful thing for a boy. The boy does not share, like a woman, the delight of sex with a man, but looks on sober at another's intoxication. From it all, my amateur hypothesis is that Socrates was kind of like a voyeur. He mentions that he finds it most enjoyable experience to engage in a conversation with a youth he saw in the symposium, the local gym. Or maybe like us, he liked to watch young people compete. Modern Olympic gymnasts and figure skaters are 13 to 14 years old. I don't know. When they both returned from Portadaya, Alcibiades couldn't shut up about his old weird buddy Socrates. Singing his praises and reinforcing his image as the kooky guy who walks the streets asking questions. But now he wasn't kooky. He was a war hero and the best of all of us. Check out what Alcibiades was saying about Socrates when he got back. Quote, If one wanted to listen to Socrates' speeches, at first they would appear to him altogether ridiculous, such as the words and phrases that are wrapped up in the outworldly as the skin of the insolent satyr. He speaks of pack asses, smiths, cobblers, and tanners. He appears always to be speaking about the same things in the same manner so that anyone inexpert and thoughtless might find his speeches highly laughable. But if one looks at them once they have been opened from the inside, first of all, one will discover that they are the only speeches which have thought in them, and further that they are the most divine of all things, 
that they bear great images of virtue within them, and that they tend to greatness, that is, to everything that pertains to the man who strives to become beautiful and virtuous. That sounds pretty real to me. And because of this ancient media blitz, things were about to change for Socrates. He was going to be famous in a city that loved fame. And as it turns out, celebrity cultures also enjoy the downside of fame as well, as both Socrates and Alcibiades will find out. Athens will make the wrong choice concerning her relations with the fellow city-states. She will overplay her hand and pay the price for flying too close to the sun. For the Athenians are guilty of one of the greatest crimes of man, the crime of hubris. The reason for the need for hoplites was the fact that one of their city-states, a place called Portadia, had decided to stop paying Athens to be in their NATO-esque Delian League. Dun, dun, dun. It all comes back now. At this point, you want to root for Athens to be a good guy in this story, to be the shining city on the hill, but they ain't. They call up their army and send their forces to put down the rebellion in Potidea. Politically, it was a dumbass move. Practically, it was a horror show. By the end of the hostilities, the city-state of Potidea was reduced to cannibalism. This outcome was a disaster to Athens. And I mean, for me personally, too. I just put in 30,000 words on getting to the golden age of Athens, and we are already done. That's it. The people of Portadea chewing on a neighbor's femur for financial reasons proved the experiment failed. Well, that didn't take too long. And to boot, Athens ignites that long smoldering fire under the conservatives that meant that their old rivals were back on the game board again. Smelling blood, city-states began to flock to the Spartans, the only thing that can save them from the rapacious Democrats of Athens. They're so greedy, they'll make you eat yourself to make money. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the Peloponnesian War, a civil war that will last for decades, mean the death of hundreds of thousands of Greeks and the ruin of the once great city-state of Athens. And Socrates will be around for it all. He will leave the military for good at the age of 40, right at the beginning of the war. Returning to Athens, it'll be a city-state girding themselves for the battle one they are confident in winning. And why shouldn't they be? They had beaten the Persians on land, on sea, and they had ports they could defend, meaning always having supplies. They were ready for a scrap. And they were about to get all they could handle and more. Hubris were crimes against the gods, the gods the Athenians had abandoned. Athens was about to pay a very steep price for their impiety. But that is a story for the next episode. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed creating. I look forward to the next time you join me as we enter the fray. (laughs) 